0: You really don't like to talk about the past, do you? Tired. Well, why does it bother you to talk about it? It bothers everybody that works there. Chinatown. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's Chinatown Retrospective Series.
1: I was trying to keep someone from being hurt. I ended up making sure that she was
0: hurt. A retrospective chosen by David Kraft. Oh, you're gonna make me do it, aren't you? You're gonna make me. Oh, you're gonna make me. Hosted by Arnie. You've got a nasty reputation. I like that. Jacob. Would you call him a capable man? Very. And Stuart. What I do for a living may not be very reputable, but I am. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. We hope you enjoy the show. I see you like publicity, Mr. Giddies. Are you going to get it?
2: Today we're discussing Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Hillerman, Perry Lopez, Burt Young, and John Huston, directed by Roman Polanski. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and what kind of a guy do you think I am? Don't answer that, actually.
3: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) this is Stuart, and I know. And this is the co-host who likes
2: his nose, Jacob. Welcome to Chinatown, folks. A series picked by our patron, David Kraft, picking both Chinatown and the follow-up, The
3: Two Jakes. Okay, well, it's not a mystery why someone would want to hear about a classic, but I gotta ask, is there a specific reason why David wanted to hear about Chinatown? He's a
2: noir detective film fan, and Chinatown may be his favorite film. It's at least one of his favorite films. Mm Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I agree with that one. And he even loves the sequel... Though he doesn't consider it a classic, so that's why he did a twofer and has us reviewing both.
3: Okay, but he likes Two Jakes. I wouldn't think anyone that liked Chinatown liked Two Jakes, but that's just me.
2: I'm excited he picked it. I have never seen either of these films before. What? I remember when The Two Jakes came out, I was like, hey, it's Jack Nicholson, looks like a gangster film, that looks kind of interesting, I was going to go see it in theaters, and then I read a review that said it's a sequel to some film I'd never heard of called Chinatown. And so I'm like, well, crap, I can't see The Two Jakes without seeing Chinatown, so I just never saw either one of them, (laughs) and i had been wanting to watch this because you talk about this so much, Stuart. And in our book, you picked the movie Devil with a Blue Dress, you compared it to Chinatown. I love Devil in a Blue Dress, so it's like, if Chinatown's anything like Devil in a Blue Dress, I really want to see it, and it's just not been one I've gotten to. So I am here, a complete newbie to this entire series.
1: And I have seen this movie once about 10 years ago. I finally sat down to watch it because every cinephile raves about this film. Okay, impress me. And I was really confused with what I saw. I was not expecting a history lesson about water rights in California and then a weird incest plot twist at the end i was confused i'm like why is this considered so great so it's nice to get this chance to revisit and then discuss
3: yes and i have seen chinatown and two jakes multiple times I am the fan. I'm happy it was picked. And I agree with you. This movie is beguiling. It's strange. The first time you see it, you probably won't know what to think of it. I know that that was my initial response in high school. I was like, I don't know what I just watched, but people tell me this is great. And (laughs) through the years, I really have become really impressed, starting with the screenplay. I mean, if there's nothing else that people talk about, this screenplay by Robert Towne is considered the blueprint. If you take... Any screenwriting class, they will tell you, read this script, know this script, this is how you construct a film noir.
2: I guess you'll explain why that is as we go through it, because I'm very curious I mean, Film Noir was kind of on the outs by the 70s. This film, especially the way the opening credits go and things, it prides itself on being a throwback. So why did it take so long to get the noir film?
1: Yeah, that is one of my questions, too. Like, Film Noir was already a thing. Like, there's already great examples of it. Like, why did this one all of a sudden become this big standout? Like, not saying I didn't like the film. We'll we'll talk about it all. But, yeah, I'm still confused about its legacy.
3: Uh, uh, Let me... Clarify a modern take on noir. Yes, obviously, Bogart, Chandler, this is indebted to all of those. That is where the work began. No, what, what I'm saying is that, yes, this genre had laid dormant, you know, this. A few years before, Woody Allen was doing Play It Again, Sam, where he and the ghost of Humphrey Bogart were kind of making fun of the genre. It had become campy. And this was a movie that restored the legacy, rescued it, really, from seeming just like nostalgia. And that was the mission statement. Uh, All the people involved, they didn't want to make a film that made you think about Humphrey Bogart and movies from the 1940s. They wanted to transplant a camera, time travel really, go back in the past and take modern equipment and capture what it might have really been like in the 1930s. Starting with, again, I'll start with this script. One thing that really is impressive is that there's a lot of truth to the storyline.
1: I know when we get into that dam breaking, like, I grew up in the town where that dam broke, and, like, it was still talked about. Not just that,
3: but uh, ask historians, I didn't know about this. This movie taught me this, but this is referring to an incident that didn't happen in the 1930s, but is... A part of how LA became the sprawling metropolis that it is, the rape of Owen Valley. It is true that William Mulholland and the mayor of LA at that time concocted a scheme in which LA taxpayers basically bought themselves an aqueduct that never got water to the city. And that water was taken from Owen Valley by force, sometimes with bombs and poisons and thuggery, so that people that had illegally bought up land could water their estates and profit.
1: Yeah, I, growing up in California, like, I know, like, Chicago is considered, like, the dirty political town, but, like, LA like is real seedy like just recently you know you hear about bridges to nowhere we have a bullet train to nowhere like they started to build in the middle of the state I think they've given up on it after a few billion dollars was spent like there is so much corruption out here
3: Mm -hmm. yeah the fact that any of this is not just a plot from a pulp fiction novel but in fact something that this screenwriter discovered while doing research he had really you know fallen in love with Chandler wanted to do something like that when he found this story he can Received Chinatown as a trilogy. This was the beginnings of something that he wanted to have defined by elemental forces. I'm going to tell the history of LA, starting with water, a second film that will get involved in Earth and Fire, and a third film that will go into the element of air. And through that discourse, you're not only going to watch a detective uncover mysteries, you're going to find out how L.A. came to be.
1: This is something I like in film, like The Nice Guys, if you've seen that film. like Love it. Yeah, it's about pollution in L.A., but it's a detective noir story. Like I, I do feel like this is something you do see every now and then. And I think that's fun, is to wrap some of that historical truth around a a mystery story. Yeah, it
3: gives it a spine. It gives it more weight, I think, the fact that, you know, we're not just... You know, riffing on uh, an LA that came from pop culture. But in fact, you know, again, if you, if you spend any time in LA, Jacob, you live there. I've spent 11 years there. It is a mysterious place. You do wonder how these 72 little principalities ended up becoming one identifier. And this movie provides answers. And it was always intended to be a Jack Nicholson vehicle. Robert Town had worked with Nicholson going back to their Roger Corman days when they were making Edgar Allan Poe horror movies in the 60s. He always thought that Jack would make a great detective... And a great romantic leading male. This is actually Jack's first movie where he plays opposite a woman. And the plan was, uh, he went to Bob Evans at Paramount. Well, Bob wanted basically the next Godfather. They had had a big hit at Paramount, revived the company. He said, give me something like that. And he was like, okay, I got this script called Water and Power. And it's going to be a great star vehicle for Jack Nicholson, who was pretty big at this time, but not leading man. This movie will make him a leading man. And Bob's girlfriend should be really good in it too, Allie McGraw, until she (laughs) decides to leave Bob Evans for Steve McQueen in the middle of filming The Getaway. And, well, she loses that part. We get Faye Dunaway.
2: Water and Power... Seems like a much more appropriate title for this film. So why did they change it to Chinatown?
3: Yeah, well, among other things, Town had, in doing his research, and this, I think, script took him two years to write, he was profiling cops around L.A. and detectives, and he met a white guy who said, yeah, that his beat was Chinatown. And it was just a place where, as someone outside the culture, he felt like anything could happen, rules don't apply. I mean, they use sort of the language in the script itself. It's a place where fate sort of takes control and bad things can happen. And he just thought that it was cool as a metaphor. Bob Evans was like, I don't want him to make a movie with a bunch of Chinese and that's not going to be a big hit. He was thinking it was going to be the Chinese godfather and he was like, no, no, no. This is a metaphor. You have to go with the spirit of it and not a literal I mean, funny fact, the original script didn't even end in Chinatown.
2: Yeah, I thought this was going to be Jack Nicholson investigating something in Chinatown. He'd be a stranger in a strange land. That's just what the title told me. And nope.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you, Arnie. The first time I watched this, I'm like, when are we getting to Chinatown? Like, I see some like Chinese servants in the background. But when are we getting to that Chinatown? Oh, two hours later?
3: Never. That was again, (laughs) the plan. It was never going to be there. It was always just an idea, a statement to to say the pain that the private eye had experienced in the past. It's only because they hired Roman Polanski as director that they worked it in to the actual climax. He wasn't the first choice. They went to John Houston first. Why wouldn't you want to get the guy that invented the genre, made the Maltese Falcon 30 years ago, would it be great to see him do it all over again? He said, I'll start it, but I'm I'm not up for directing this. And so they went on to Mike Nichols who had directed Jack Nicholson and Carnal Knowledge and made The Graduate. He read the script. It was 180 pages. He says, I don't understand it.
1: <laughs> I literally can't follow the script. That's how I was the first time I watched it.
3: <laughs> yeah. He gave it to then Roman Polanski, who had had a good relationship with Paramount with Rosemary's Baby and and Roman was like, eh, not bad, but it needs to come down a lot. I, it's, it's too convoluted, too much. So Robert Town worked on it six more months and turned in an even longer script. <laughs> and Roman Polanski did sign on. He needed the money. He had been making films in Europe by this point. So this was his return to Hollywood. The first time he was making a film there since Sharon Tate died, which is, of course, something that colors the feel of this movie. You you feel that it's made by a man who's grieving the death of a blonde woman. But he and Town fought over this storyline, and it is the movie it is, in part. Even though Town is the only one that got the Oscar, I do believe that when I read about what the script was, and how detailed it was, we really do owe uh, Roman Polanski a lot of credit for being able to say, hey, I know you want to talk about water irrigation, but this, to me, is a story about relationships, romance. Romance and the death of a woman, and you know it might not have been The Godfather, uh, which you know ended up making eighty million, I think, in its day. But they spent six million dollars on this. It grossed thirty. It got eleven Academy Award nominations. Jack Nicholson got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame through this movie. I do think it was. A hit. A, a solid hit that ironically was overshadowed by Godfather Part II. When it came time to hand out the awards, Godfather Two pretty much took everything but script. Robert Town is the only one that got a statue out of this. And Jack would have to wait another year for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to get finally awarded as actor.
2: Well, Stuart, why don't you go ahead then and give us a plot summary and tell us what happens, or for the most part doesn't,
3: in Chinatown. Jack Nicholson stars as Jake Geddes, a private eye in 1937 Los Angeles who specializes in catching married folk in the act of infidelity. One day, a jealous wife appears in Jake's office wanting photographic evidence of a cheating husband, which the P.I. dutifully acquires by climbing up on a roof and snapping semi-incriminating shots of Hollis Mulray in the embrace of a mysterious young blonde. And because Mulray is a bigwig at Water and Power, that photo winds up on the front page of the newspaper and causes a small scandal. Jake realizes he's been hoodwinked a few days later when Hollis mysteriously drowns. The girlfriend goes missing, and Faye Dunaway reveals herself to be the real Evelyn Mulray. The woman who hired Jake was a prostitute, impersonating the widow, and she's murdered before she can reveal the identity of her employer. For the next 90 minutes, Jake digs deep into Hollis Mulray's after-work activities and encounters an assortment of dangerous and enterprising characters, one of whom, played by director Roman Polanski, slices open Jake's nose with a switchblade. Giddys eventually uncovers an elaborate conspiracy masterminded by city officials hiding within a social club called Albacore, which diverts fresh water from San Fernando Valley Reservoirs so that surrounding farms fail and Albacore members can acquire the land cheaply. They know this real estate will greatly increase in value when the valley is eventually incorporated into the growing sprawl of Los Angeles city limits, thus giving them unprecedented municipal power. And while Hollis Mulray is close to exposing this conspiracy, Albacore is really a red herring. This is not the reason the man was murdered, nor was Hollis killed by wife Evelyn, who Jake had come to suspect after sleeping with the femme fatale and finding out she was keeping the other woman captive across town. No, the true villain of the story is Noah Cross, a gregarious tycoon who both runs Albacore and co-owned Water and Power with Hollis, and is played to the hilt by John Huston. Noah drowned Hollis in his saltwater zen garden pond after seeing him on the front page of the newspaper with Noah's long lost love child Catherine. And it's a literal slap in the face when Jake finally puts it together that Noah sired Catherine with his first daughter Evelyn, and presumably wants to find this girl so he can keep doing sexually perverse things with family members. In an effort to keep her sister daughter away from her incestuous father, Faye Dunaway's character hides out at a butler's place in Chinatown, But before she can flee to Mexico, Jake, Noah, and the LAPD all close in on the place in the climax, and Evelyn is shot dead by a trigger-happy cop. Noah gets away with Catherine, and Jake is devastated to realize that he's yet again failed to protect a woman he loved in Chinatown, a story he's told to forget about as credits roll. And as they start,
2: definitely can tell what they're trying to call back to. The titles are this brown and black sepia tone, definitely taking me back to early films and even having so many credits at the top the way they used to. You know, it used to be all of your credits for your sound people and things were at the beginning. And then at the end, it would just be like, bomb, 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 lights up and you walk out.
3: The end. That's it. We don't have to do anything more.
1: Yeah. They even had jewels provided by the family jewels in the opening credits. Like That's when it caught my attention. I'm like, oh, they're doing that old-timey thing, putting everything up front. They're definitely going for a vibe and even like telling you what era this movie is going to take place in. Yeah. This was trendy
3: in the early 70s. There was a lot of nostalgia for the 1930s and 40s, but this movie was different. I want to reemphasize you watch a movie like The Sting or Paper Moon, they try to look like movies from that time. Let's shoot it in black and white. Let's use the optical tricks that were popular at the time. Again, Polanski said, I'm not doing any of that. Remember that stuff you hated in Aviator, Arnie, about the... (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's change the color, let's have the newscaster talk like a radio guy from a hammy 30s radio show. Polanski wasn't having any of that. That was sort of the instinct that some of the people at the studio were pushing, but he was like, no. But they then jumped from the credits into more black and white we start
2: with fully zoomed in black and white photos which if you didn't know what you were watching if you hadn't seen a trailer and I did watch a trailer before coming in I kind of wanted to know what I was in for but you might think you were going to watch a black and white movie but it turns out it's Burt Young looking at some photographs Mm hmm. And Burt Young, I primarily know him from Rocky.
1: Yeah, it's Polly.
2: Yeah, I was surprised he had such a small role here. I was I thought he would only be in the beginning. I was like, he was pretty high ranked in the credits for just being this loser at the opening scene, finding out his wife cheated on him. But he will pop back up at the climax.
3: Rocky wouldn't come out for two more years. I don't think he was any kind of celebrity that people would want to see. But again, I talk about how great the screenplay is. No one would suspect that Curly was coming back. I love the way that he gets introduced. I love the way that he gets reintroduced in the climax.
1: Yeah, there's some real dark comedy going on when he comes back from the film that cracked me up once I got the joke of the black eye. But these opening like shots of his wife cheating on him, like they're going doggy. Like this doesn't feel like 1937 movies. Like this feels very 70s. Like these pictures are pretty raw.
2: There's gonna be a Cunnilingus joke later on too. I'm like, were guys going down on
3: chicks in the 30s? Yes. This is exactly my point. They didn't want you to feel like this was some safe, protected time where people acted according to the to the rules of the code of cinema. Like, no, like people were dogs then and now. And I want to show that that's Polanski. That's his forte. He likes perversity and and sexual experimentation, as we will discuss later. But yeah, it's a funny way of getting us started here. It gives Nicholson some comedy to play off of as we see his business. It's kind of a shady deal. He'll get a lot of judgments from other people that basically he makes his profit on destroying marriages. I'm going to find your wife in the bushes with another man and take pictures of it and you have to pay for that. But it gets turned on him right in the beginning as he meets a woman that, well, we know is not Faye Dunaway. And I guess if you're sharp enough, you might suspect that this is a plant asking him to investigate Hollis Mulray. I guess
2: I'm not sharp enough because I didn't know this character was supposed to be Faye Dunaway. I just thought this was going to be what kicked off the plot and... I had no suspicion this woman wasn't who she said she was. I was more distracted by the fact that Jack Nicholson tries to turn down her business. He's like, you're better off not knowing. Just let sleeping dogs lie. There's nothing here. Just... Pretend it's not happening. I mean, he doesn't make any money with that advice.
3: No, again, and I think that's a nice character detail of you realize that he's not just a hound out for money, that he sees a woman that, you know, seems nice. And what's ironic is that he's giving himself advice he won't take. If only he would listen to the idea that there are some things better off not knowing, he wouldn't end up in the situation he is at the end of this movie. But yes, when he finds out that the target is a high-up official in city water and power, okay, (laughs) that's going to cost a lot. (laughs) Write up the contracts and let the money flow in. The other thing about Giddies is that he loves the spotlight. We will see that he relishes attention, and this is the kind of case that, yeah, it will put him on the front page of the newspaper.
2: And we go to him watching Mulray at a... City council meeting, and they're discussing a dam. and finally Mulray gets up in front of people, and I see who the actor slash character is, and my immediate response is, okay, something else is going on, that nerd is not getting laid. He is not cheating with anybody, not that pencil neck. Come on, he owns half the water in L.A., but, which is yeah. a
1: desert. Like, that is one of the things people don't realize. L.A. is a desert. Like, we've been in drought for I don't know how many years now. Like, and every time it rains, like, one day, they're like, oh, we're out of the drought. And then it doesn't rain for, like, another year, and we're back in the drought. But, yeah, he is heartbroken over this dam that has broken and killed a bunch of people. And this is true. They they give it a different name, but there's the St. Francis Dam, which was up in the Santa Clara Valley, which is north of the valley, which is north of L.A., but yeah, that was a dam that William Mulho- Mulholland built, and the engineering science of the day was was not the most, you know, current, and it broke and flooded the whole valley. It went all the way to the ocean, which is a very long trip. Like, there was so much water, and like, I grew up in that valley for my junior high and high school years, and like, there's a huge wash that goes through it, and that's because they built another dam, the Castaic Dam. If that ever broke, like, this was going to be the way people don't drown again. Get out to the sea.
3: Yeah, and an- another thing to notice here in that scene, look on the wall behind them. It's a giant picture of FDR, who, of course, famously in the 1930s had the whole New Deal plan, put people back to work, essentially is credited with ending the Depression by having all of these giant projects built like the Hoover Dam. So we're to think of this as a big government plan that's going to help a lot of people. So why is this little guy against it? And why are these farmers that are barging in with all these sheep saying you're the one that's ruining our lives you're the one that's taking our water
1: yeah i do gotta laugh at like eight and a half million for a dam. like i work for the government we could barely get anything done for eight and a half million these days
2: a sidewalk for one block is probably eight and a half million these days but pretty close i can't say i fully followed i've watched it one time All of the machinations with the water and where the water's going and the sheep, the sheep that run in and this guy yelling, you're killing us because he wouldn't build the dam. So the sheep herder wanted the dam so that he had more water.
1: Yeah, because there's no water in L.A. There's like no water around here. There's reservoirs everywhere because it's so dry. So without that water, you can't have, you know water for your crops like that's a huge issue is all these almond farms in the central valley have like sucked up the underground water so you guys can have almond milk it's a huge issue in california water rights and who's taking whose water
2: and in our defense it's
3: probably mostly californians drinking that shit
1: yeah you're probably right
3: But I don't think this guy is in L.A. He seems to me like he's on the outskirts. He's one of the farmers that we're going to find out are being bullied and that their wells are being destroyed and that there is a drought. I mean, keep in mind, in the 30s, Dust Bowl and all of that, there were huge agricultural devastations happening all you know, along, mostly in Oklahoma and Texas. But it's not hard to imagine that here in this desert community, every drop of water really matters. And the fact that, yes, riverbeds are drying up. And yeah, this is the first we're getting wind of the fact that water that rightfully belongs to these farmers is being taken by water and power. So what's happening right now is
2: we've got Water being taken away from farmers. We'll see that later. So I wasn't sure if the sheep herder was one of those who feels like water that should be coming to them isn't. And that's because Noah Cross, who had co-founded Water and Power, was arranging it so that certain areas right outside L.A. were drought-stricken, right?
1: Yeah, he was dumping water. We'll see Hollis at the coastline watching water come out of pipes. and So they're dumping that fresh water just to get rid of these farmers, I guess, so they could get the land cheaper? That's my understanding.
3: Yeah, yeah. If their farm fails, then they have no other option, right? You're done. You're kaput. And I do believe that he's from Orange County, which, again, there is no oranges being grown in Orange County. I think they're showing you in the history of LA how a place that used to, that could have rivaled Florida for producing oranges, was bled drop.
2: Okay, and that's. What I was guessing, because we do see Mulray is watching some water line just start spewing out a whole lot of water. So, what was happening is Cross had somehow rigged it that these lines will waste water and thus it's not going to get to the What
3: furthest reaches where these farmers need it? Two things are what I heard. That one, yes, let's just make sure that their water isn't available. And so we'll dump it in the ocean if we had to. And just create a crisis in which people so badly need water that they're going to vote on building this dam and this aqueduct and we can take all of their taxpayer money.
2: But this dam is it for the farmers, right? This dam, the drought outside of LA is a scare tactic, I think, and the dam is supposed to reassure the people of Los Angeles proper you won't run out of water because later on, we're gonna have Geddes talking to Cross and being like, oh, it's just convenient that all of this land that you will have bought up cheap suddenly has water as a
3: side effect of this dam. Yes. There are two people being screwed. The people of of L.A. and the farmers of Orange County. The farmers of Orange County have water and wells and what have you, and those wells are being blown up, poisoned, and siphoned off and being dumped. But on top of that, the water that is rightly for the citizens of L.A. is also being dumped, creating the sense that we're going to be without water unless we invest our tax dollars in a dam, and that water is being used to irrigate the valley. With the ultimate idea that, yes, these farms that went bad can be restored, their value is increased, and now the people that own them ultimately will be incorporated into L.A. Uh, L.A. will have to grow bigger in order to survive if it wants water and crops. So I heard two things.
2: One is I heard that the farmers were having a drought, the sheep guy. Later on, the orange farmers were having a drought. But then you said that their water is being poisoned and blown up and things. So is it both? Is it. Do they have water?
1: It's both. They're dumping the water and it's also being sabotaged. Okay. It's
2: a little confusing there because it is. <laughs> it's a lot of tell don't show. We see water go someplace and eventually we're told why we saw it. But this is a secondary plot. This is the why behind the human story we're going to see. And on one viewing, I got, I think, 90% of it, and I think that I was able to put together the last 10% through guesswork, but best noir script of all time, I expect it to be rock solid, and if I have these questions, the script should answer.
3: Well, here's all I would say to that. The fight always behind the scenes was that town wanted to work in the details of the conspiracy. And Polanski wanted to throw them away, minimize them, uh, reference them with visuals. You get it because you see the man standing next to pipes where water is dumping out into the ocean that tells you that dumping is happening. You'll get the general sense of it. He was much more concerned about telling that family story. The family story is the metaphor to talk about the way the city officials treat people.
1: Yeah, I think there's enough here to more or less get what's going on. It's like when I watched Roger Rabbit as a teen and had to learn about the history of like why LA is a car city and doesn't have a public transportation. Like that's a whole subplot in that. Like I didn't really understand that, but like it didn't get in the way of me enjoying that film. And like, yeah, this one, like the first time it did get in the way, like there's so much going on and this history lesson, civics lessons, all this stuff. And yeah, watching it a second time, like I kind of knew what I was going to get going in. And so, yeah, it's there. It could be as complicated as you want it to be. Like, I get the gist. And yeah, let's get into the actual personal story. So for me,
3: why this movie is so satisfying is you can watch it, I've probably seen it 10 times, and always be learning new details because it is so densely layered. But I don't think on a first viewing that you would be so confused about the background conspiracy that it would prevent enjoyment.
1: I was just confused the first time I watched this because why is it about water? It's called <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Chinatown. It sets certain expectations.
3: Uh, You were hoping for uh, Lethal Weapon 4. No. Nobody I, hopes for that. Right. True. <laughs> you know what I meant. Yes.
1: Yeah, but no, I thought it was going to be yeah, a noir story with gangsters in Chinatown. Yeah, I know what you mean by Lethal Weapon 4, but yes, something more, yeah, along those lines with gangsters and cops and PIs and all that.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's to this movie's credit as a enigma that it teases that and ends up not being that. This movie is very good at surprises, and I feel like that's one of them. You're right. Audiences would expect this to be all about tongs and Chinese gangsters, and it's barely here. We will learn that Jake Giddies was a cop, that he had a history of working in Chinatown, and not unlike Bogart in Casablanca, we don't know why Rick is at the club, but something went bad in the past that made him an expatriate. They're drawing upon that legend here. Something made Jake give up being a cop, and not carry a gun. That was one of the big draws of of this movie was that Nicholson said, I don't want my character to carry a gun. I'm a private eye without a weapon. He thought that that was a really interesting detail. Why wouldn't he hold that gun? What is it that happened to him that traumatized him so much? They're playing a lot with that.
1: Yeah, I definitely got Casablanca vibes, like you said, because, yeah, they're going to tease this mystery. And I don't think we ever really find out. Maybe that was for part two or three. But, like, he says enough that I get the gist, like, something went real bad. He trusted a woman that he shouldn't have. Like, it's setting up expectations for when we finally meet Faye Dunaway. Like, yeah, femme fatales and don't trust these people. Because that's what burned you before.
3: Yeah. The first inkling that we get of it is that, yes, he finally does get his snapshot of this guy after tailing him around in riverbeds. And he is out all night, but it's not with women. He's just like dating reservoirs. And then all of a sudden, they get wind that over in Echo Park, he's got this little honey in a rowboat, and they get a few snaps. Put it on the front of the paper, and the first indication we ever hear about Chinese or anything is that Jake Gettys is gloating that he's on the front page of the paper at the barber shop and gets into a fight with another gentleman who thinks he's a scumbag and a lowlife that's profiting off people's misery, and to deflate it, the barber tells a joke about the Chinese sex.
2: Geddes gave that photo to the newspaper, right? There's no other way the newspaper could have that photo that fast. But he's screaming at this guy that he had no idea it was going to be in the newspaper. But I just can't see any other way the paper would get it.
1: My assumption is he showed the photos to fake Mrs. Mulray. And she took them to the press because she's working with Cross,
3: I believe. And the guy that was the butler on Magnum P.I.,
2: I have a lot of questions about fake Mrs. Mulray. Who hired
3: her? What she's doing? I guess then maybe this isn't the noir for you. This movie is about ambiguity. To some degree, there's a dense plot that will not be broken out step by step. Again in part because Polanski said there's no room for it, but also because I think it's more philosophical in nature than trying to break down a conspiracy, which if you want to know about you can go and read the history book.
1: Yeah, I do feel like this is a very 70s movie in that you can't fight the power, like it's going to crush you, you could try to do the right thing, and it's only going to bring you pain, and so yeah, that there's this ambiguity, I don't mind it that, again, especially the second time I don't mind it that much because I kind of know where things are going and 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 yeah, that, that is the, the thing. You can't know everything. And, and that's the downfall of Jake.
3: Yeah, you think Jake is going to figure it all out. Now, there's a lot of assumptions we have about film noir. And this feels like a 70s modern film noir because he fails. Because he actually doesn't figure it out. Because the film fatale that we presume has to be in on it is actually the most innocent character and she kind of blows in here while he's retelling that crass Chinese joke to his compatriots and I just love the way that it's set with her leering in the background just ready to pounce with her lawyer about how he's going to get it for publishing wrong information about her family.
2: The performance of Diddy's two assistants there seeing her in the background just like closing their eyes and there's absolutely nothing they can do. An ultimate cringe moment there for them. I really liked the silent performances they were giving much more than I liked Nicholson's joke. Yeah, no, the joke isn't really funny. I
1: didn't get the joke, I'll be honest.
2: The wife was cheating on the husband with the Chinaman.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Yes.
3: And not only that, it gets to the theme about the Chinese have ways that aren't understood by the Anglo band, which is, you know, the the big theme of where we're leading with Chinatown.
1: The joke it just said they like he kept going back and he would have sex with her a little bit and then leave and then come back. I thought it was like, you know, you, you always get hungry thirty minutes after you eat Chinese.
2: I thought that's where it was gonna go, you know, is but no, it, it comes out and the punchline is you're having sex like a Chinaman and you, you know.
1: Okay, got it now.
3: Yeah. I don't think the joke is it's not that scene is not funny because of the joke he's telling. <laughs> the joke he's telling is racist and unfunny. The scene is funny because Faye Dunaway is standing behind him in a about to drop a major lawsuit on him, and he's just digging uh, the hole deeper. And Faye Dunaway, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I really love her in this part. They looked at other people. Jane Fonda had just won an Oscar, and many people behind the scenes wanted her. It was Polanski (laughs) that got his wish of casting Faye, who had broken out big with Bonnie and Clyde and really hadn't had another hit in seven years, and they notoriously fought on this set. She accused him of rape because he plucked a hair that was catching the light in the shot and famously fought. Well, almost had him fired many times and he could have had her fired too because the producers hated her. But in the end, he knew she was right for the role. And I got to say, whatever the drama was, she's fantastic as a femme fatale here on the screen. She's amazing. And this
2: is an actress who I have seen. Bonnie and Clyde once. I've seen Supergirl at least a dozen times. So when I think of Faye Dunaway, I think of her awful, awful turn in Supergirl. And so I wasn't sure what to get. I've never seen Mommy Dearest, but I've
3: seen the clips. You haven't seen Mommy Dearest? Yeah, Mommy Dearest is sort of what she's known for yeah. because it sort of encapsulates the way that people think of Faye Dunaway. I'm going to just go ahead and say, I've had my own encounter with Faye Dunaway, and she is very much Mommy Dearest when she wants to be. But yeah, as an actress... I, It's this movie and Network that really will sell you on what a great film star she could have been and sometimes is. I have seen Network, but not for like
2: 20 years. I need to see that thing again. But, yeah, here, I honestly, from Mommy Dears to Supergirl, was expecting over-the-top pain. But she's really good in this. She's playing subtle. She's playing sexy. She's playing secretive. She is doing exactly what you want her to do.
3: Yeah. And what's so interesting is that uh, here she is in one scene saying, okay, I'm going to sue the pants off of you. And then two scenes later, when Giddus is trying to find her husband, all of a sudden she's just like, oh, never mind. Let's drop it. It makes her look really guilty that all of a sudden she's willing to like stand down and, It would lead one to believe, and I don't know where you guys stood on this, that she was responsible when we find out that Hollis is dead. Oh, of course I thought she was. I mean, noir. If they're doing a classic noir, there's a femme
2: fatale. If there's a femme fatale, not only did she kill her husband for cheating on her, she's going to try to screw over Gideon later on, too.
1: Yeah, I I felt that way the first time I watched this until you find out how Hollis died. I'm like, that's a very physical way to kill someone. I don't know if she can do it. Even though Hollis, he's not the biggest guy.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Teased in this moment, we do see that, yes, she has this amazing house. The Chinese theme is coming back because all her help is Oriental. And one of them, the gardener, is, you know, running around playing with this Zen garden here. You know, like, Giddies is the only person to notice there's something sparkly in there. They're dropping a clue that will become relevant in the climax that the murder could be solved if you look in the Zen pond.
2: I really thought that when the... Gardner was talking he was saying bad for glass like window glass and now I realize they were doing that really kind of racist R's or L's L's or R's kind of thing but I thought he was talking about glass somewhere and I was trying to figure out where there was any glass in the backyard and what was bad for the glass but we're gonna find out later it's grass right
3: but they are glasses that are in there
1: yeah, we'll see Jake look in that pond and I see some kind of glass. I have no idea what it is, but they do this trick a few times. Like earlier, when they were tailing Hollis, he was talking to some mystery person about Applecore, which ends up being Albacore later on. Like, misunderstandings seem to be a big theme in this one.
3: That's just classic noir. If you look at any of them, they always try to layer that in as the way you write the first act so that it has payout in the third. But I want to emphasize, you're right. Racism. We would think that, oh, like this is just a silly, like old stereotype performance of Asians. They can't pronounce the L. It's because of a white's cultural ignorance that he doesn't really figure out. What he could hear. And so if he knew it was salt water, he would know that when they dragged Hollis out, there's a whole lot of mystery about the fact that he drowned in a freshwater spout, but he's got salt water in his lungs. Yeah, they don't tell him that, though, either till about three quarters
2: of the way through the movie. We knew he drowned. We didn't know it was salt water until much, much later. But
3: yes, had those two things come together, then this movie would be short. Mm -hmm. And this is where we meet Escobar, his old partner when he had the Chinatown beat. And he's doing quite well in the police force. He's moved up and is, again, I think... Like many people, looking at Jake as sort of a scumbag, who bottom feeder, you know, again, not living up to his potential. He, he should be a detective, a protector, and instead he just breaks up marriages. And that's a shame. That's Again, I think that's what drives Nicholson in the middle of this movie. He could walk away from this case. When he finds out that he's not going to be sued anymore, he's not in the hook anymore, easy come, easy go, I'm off. But it's the fact that his reputation, you know, that that's what gets impinged here. It looks like you might be in some way extorting Mulray. You know she killed him, but you're extorting her for money. That's what he's going to be accused of. The fact that someone pretended to be Mulray and hired him and he didn't figure it out. There's a lot of pride here. And he stays in this case in part because he wants to prove that he's more than a bottom feeder.
1: Yeah, I I definitely got the sense why he could have left at any time. It was his reputation on the line because he botched that whole thing with the wrong Mrs. Mulray and getting duped. And so, yeah, he wants to clear his name.
3: And I think we all understand at this point that there's enough information here. To me, every dot is not connected, but I think we understand that water flows and ebbs at particular times and that water and power knows it. When giddy's drops by the office, he can see written down that on Tuesday, seven channels are going to be used. And, you know, there's this whole thing about a homeless man that was living in a spout. And even though the river is completely bone dry, he somehow drowned.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was Return of the Living Dead 3 with Riverman. Like, I'm like, the LA River, there ain't no water in that. There's only water <laughs> in the LA River when it rains because it's runoff. I'm like, yep, this film totally understands that.
3: Yeah, I do love that. Grease, I think, also uses the LA River for car racing because there's no water in it. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. But you see, and I'm trying to connect all these dots because I had come in with the knowledge from somewhere i don't know where i heard it but that this was the best script ever written and so i would assume that would mean tight i would assume that means all the dots are connected and if i'm not seeing a connection i took that as a personal failing and so that's why i come in with questions about like who hired the fake mrs mulray because i'm not seeing exactly those dots connect
3: It does get called out. Giddy's does eventually go to the other guy at the Water and Power office. The one that I recognize as Tom Selleck's butler on Magnum P.I. <laughs> butler slash boss Higgins. Yeah. Russ Yelburton is the name of the character here. And he's in on it. As far as Albacore goes, he was in on hiring Mulray so that they could essentially ruin the reputation of the only man in Water and Power that didn't want this... Scam to go forward, that didn't want the dam built, that wasn't fine with farmers being ripped off. But that doesn't mean that they're killers. That's what's interesting about this movie, is you assume if they're guilty of one, they're guilty of the other. They did not kill him. And in fact, it's even implied that maybe he killed himself after the scandal. But then again, how did he get that salt water? That's the one clue that tells you it couldn't have been he slipped down that pipe. He couldn't have just drowned. But you mentioned that you want to know about the fake mole ray. It is Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's mom. Oh, same year. She uh, was notably uh, loved as Flo Kiss My Grits and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. (laughs) Only know the TV version. That's (laughs) fair. I do think the TV show is more popular than the movie. (laughs) But the point is she does blow in here two more times. Once just to make the phone call to clear her name. We understand that she was a prostitute and we understand that she's afraid of the people that hired her. I think in part why you can't connect it to one person is that there's this whole albacore class club that's really sanctioning this. And the only clue that she'll give is, if you want to know what's behind this, look into the obituary column. And we'll see that Gideas holds on to that. It will eventually be a clue that pays out towards the end of the movie.
2: Yeah, I thought that whoever hired her will have been killed is what I had taken that to be. But again, why this woman decides to help Giddys with a clue like that I mean, she says,
3: I'm scared. I want to clear my name if this ever comes out. I don't want it to be seen that I corroborated in a murder. I just thought I was, you know, doing a funny little bit a tease and now the guy's dead I mean you can understand why you wouldn't want to be associated with that and
2: she's gonna end up dead either because of telling him that or they were gonna kill her anyway
1: yeah it does feel very noir that like she just can't come out and say like who hired her or what's going on whatever she knows like let me give you this really vague clue that then you gotta spend a half hour figuring out by looking at obituaries and and finding who those people are
3: and now we get probably the second most famous scene in the entire movie uh, one that uh, always gets talked about a great deal, in part because it allows Roman Polanski to step in front of the camera. He is the midget with the switchblade when giddys is seeing the water being dumped. In fact, it's almost drowned in the runoff and uh, at the same reservoir duct where Hollis died.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you ask me, even before I ever saw this film, like Chinatown, describe it. I don't know, Jack Nicholson with a bandage over his nose. Like I knew that. That seems to be the iconography for this film is his cut nose.
3: Yeah. Again, this movie is like riskier in the fact that it's willing to show those kind of seedy details, that you would take the hero and physically mar them. They originally planned to cut off his ear, but Polanski said he came up with all of this. It wasn't in the script. He said, I like the idea of someone that's so nosy that they cut his nose uh, to make a point and maybe feed their goldfish with it. It is a, a very memorable scene and a really convincing trick switchblade. I know that Jack Nicholson, they only did this once or twice. He was very worried about the prop malfunctioning and it could potentially have cut him for real.
2: I really thought that they took off like half his nose with that. I didn't realize they'd just cut it. I thought he'd like lost a nostril or something. So when he eventually shows the stitches, it's not as bad as I thought.
3: Yeah, it's just a slice on the nostril. They didn't take it off. But again, a bloody and just not something that you would expect a hero to experience. I can't even imagine Bogart, ugly as he is, having his face marred this way.
2: But I'm very into the mystery and into the characters at this point of the movie, just for a pulse check. I really like Nicholson's private detective, the fact that he's not just working for the paycheck, he doesn't have to be doing any of this. There's no skin in the game for him other than morality. Vanity.
3: Yeah, but he didn't want to be on the paper he said. No, no, he definitely wanted the paper. No, I don't buy that for a minute. He loved the fact that he was
1: big news. Yeah, it's the fact that he looks stupid the way he got in the paper.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. No, the fact that, yeah, that he's walking around with his bandage is hurting his vanity. Again, all of this is a mission to prove that he is not the scumbag that people treat him as. And yeah, I really just, I want to h- highlight, it's something that will you'll soak up more when you watch the movie more. But just the dialogue, the, the way that characters, just even small characters, like the the guy standing next to Roman Polanski in that scene is typified earlier as someone that looked the other way during Prohibition. So why is this a dry county when it wasn't a dry county? county under him in the in the 20s i just think that all of that is very clever and you see the attention and how detailed that 180 page script must have been that polanski whittled down that you feel like that town probably did have every detail worked out and polanski was the one that took the risk of saying there's some things we don't need to tell people but every detail that is shared is one that i just relish
1: I think we're shown the reason why. Like Soon we'll have Jake go and meet, I guess, the villain of this film, Noah Cross. And he knows about Noah because, what, all those pictures were in the Water and Power office. And he, and he heard something from the secretary, who that was.
3: Not only that, but one of his assistants ran around when he was following Hollis, back when Hollis was alive, and took a photo of this guy fighting with Cross. So, like, who is this guy that I don't have a name for? Suddenly, I realize he was a co-owner of Water and Power, which means that they collectively owned all of this water. They can say what happens to it. And it was, Hollis was the one that was arguing that it should not be privatized, but uh, given to the public.
2: And in the scene right before, Evelyn had... Revealed her middle name or her maiden name To be Cross So as soon as I see Cross on the wall I'm like okay so now we're dealing with her daddy
3: Yes exactly and they're not sharing scenes together. She won't even know that Geddes is meeting with him as we get, yes, the amazing performance by John Houston.
1: John Houston's so great in this. He is,
3: like, as good as any, maybe the best performance in this movie. I just absolutely love the folksy charm for what a despicable character he is.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, he chews up the scenery beautifully. I mean, Nicholson has a reputation for being a big actor actor, and for Nicholson, he's mostly playing it reined in here. You know, he'll be much bigger in Cuckoo's Nest. He's pretty big when telling the Chinaman joke, but beyond that, he's pretty reined in, but to see somebody who can hold the ground with that and really just be big and yet not comedically so, be a believable large villain, I think was a really good acting job here
1: and one of the things I like is this film it does set things up like Burt Young like we'll talk about when his wife shows up with that black eye but when we first meet Cross here he's like oh yeah let's find out who this girl is you don't know why and like when you realize that you put the pieces together later this is a really gross like plot that he has like he's interested now because Giddes has found his incestual daughters the daughter from his incest
3: yeah plaything. yes perhaps to his next wife we aren't to know again ambiguity is our friend sometimes what nicholson said at the beginning of the picture when he's trying to tell fake mulray sometimes you don't want to know i think it's true for all the characters here like if you really want to dig into this it's going to be uh, life-altering but in this moment we are seeing that noah is hiring giddy specifically he's already been hired by evelyn to find out who killed hollis Now he's being hired by Noah to find the girl. And this girl
2: was initially photographed with Hollis Mulray. And this isn't explicitly stated, I don't think. But was Mulray sleeping with his wife's daughter? Or was Mulray merely a fatherly figure to the girl?
3: No, no, I take it when we find out that they had a falling out... And it's explained that it was over the water. And then later we hear, well, maybe there were other personal problems or something. The falling out was really when he found out what happened here. That's always my presumption. You're right. We don't know. But I presume the reason why Noah and Hollis ended their working relationship was because he found out that his wife, Noah's daughter, had sired this love child and was protecting her, was using his energy to keep her away from Noah. But Noah
1: knew that his daughter married Hollis, right?
3: Yeah, in fact, I would imagine that he insisted on it to keep Hollis closer to him. As a way of controlling a partner. But I don't know if he knew that he impregnated Evelyn. That's one thing I've never quite worked out. She ran away to Mexico at 15. So when this girl appears on the newspaper, is this the first that Noah is realizing that he had that child? Not sure.
1: Yeah, I, I get that he knew about the child, probably, but he didn't know where the child was or his daughter. Do- well, I guess he knew where his daughter was because she married the business partner. Which I that seems like a big age difference. Like
3: it seems a little incestuous. Yeah, I mean, but that's the way the business is being run.
1: Same ages cross. <laughs> And this is where we start
3: nailing down the real details. This is where I think all the detective work that you're going to get happens here in the middle of Act 2. We see that Geddes is going to try and find out why all of this land is so special. He first gets Yelburton to admit that, yeah, there's a little runoff going off to the valleys there. And so he's looking at that land... He goes to the city records, and sure enough, almost all of it has been recently purchased. And we have a funny scene with a clerk that doesn't want to be helpful, won't check out the volume that he needs. So Nicholson being Nicholson, he's just going to, you know, sneeze and tear out the page.
1: And there's something going on with Ventura County, which, you talk about Orange County where there's no orange trees, because they're all up in Ventura County, where I guess this water was being diverted to, but the clerk's like, we only have stuff on LA County, so he can't get all the information. But I, I did think that was interesting, because yeah, Ventura County, you have Oxnard with the strawberry fields, the orange groves, all that.
3: Yeah, and the fact that there's no one place to get the information almost feels, like, true of the, the movie itself. There's no scene that's going to, like, spell it all out for you the way that sometimes noirs do. You just have to extract from the tiny pieces all over the place and try to get as clear a picture as you can.
2: Yeah, I was really waiting for the Jessica Fletcher (laughs) spell-it-all-out-for-you pointer scene at the end that never comes. The exact opposite of that happens.
3: Yeah, but again, I think we would all be critical if it did, because we all know what a cliche that is. And it always feels a little bit pandering to do that. This is definitely a movie that's going to ask us to work a lot harder. But Jake is going to at least map out the fact that this land is still being owned Partly by very defensive Orange Grove <laughs> owners and farmers who have shotguns and don't like the idea of city folk poking their nose around. And this is again where I think you realize that Nicholson doesn't carry a gun. They get the upper hand, they shoot his car, he crashes it, and they search him, no gun. He's doing all of this work unprotected.
2: I like a lot of the motifs that go through here. I noticed that when they shoot his car, they hit the radiator. Water starts spewing out of the front of it, you know? If you know that this movie's about water, little things like that popped out at me.
3: Yeah, and earlier there's a scene where a car overheated and it really gave you a sense of how hot it is, why this drought would have been such a problem in this day. But yes, they call Evelyn in, she's driving him back to the city, and he's explaining the con. I think this is telling you some of what he's learned, helping audiences figure out if someone, a nebulous force, is moving this water around to irrigate certain areas where the land has been bought up. Who are the owners of this land? This is where we get that obituary to pop back up. One of them's a dead person. And we'll find out that all of the owners of the land are very old, senile people in a Mar Vista nursing home.
1: So the Albacore Club, they're using these senile old people's names to buy up the land. They don't know that. They're not in on it. They're being used. Right. That's
3: how I took it. Yeah, I think you even see this Emma Dill is, like, sewing an albacore flag, and she mentions her grandson. That's all you're going to get. But to me, that's enough to go, oh, they're exploiting old people. Like, if we put it in our own name, someone would figure out what we're doing. But if we put it in old people's names, then they're never going to know they have this land, and we can profit. We're going to inherit it eventually.
1: And is. Jake being tailed. There's two men that show up, and I like he, he's always getting himself in danger. His nose cut, shot at by farmers. Now these guys show up at this old person's home, and they're shooting at him. Does no one know what's going on? So he's having him tailed.
3: No, I think what happened is we had the scene begin with Geddes and Evelyn pretending to be the children of a of a senior, and we get the joke where Nicholson says, "Do you accept people of the Jewish persuasion?" and, and the guys like no which is like horrible you know like but that was the reality yeah there was so much bigotry at that time and then Nicholson just plays it off as like good neither does dad you know like he waltzes (laughs) in there and yeah he finds out the names on the wall match the names in the ledger well that guy is noticing them notice and he's the one that picked up the phone and called the midget and the water security guy the same people that cut his nose are back to take the whole thing
2: As the plot goes on, I've noticed the physical danger, I almost attempted to call it abuse, but the physical danger that Giddes finds himself in ratchets up. You know, initially it's a cut on the nose, and then it's being beaten by a crutch and a couple of okies, as he calls them, and now... He does the hockey move on that guy where you pull the jersey over the head so that their arms are bound and they can't fight back and just beats the crap out of him and then has to ride away on a moving car, just jumping on like the sideboard while Evelyn is driving and these guys are going to take shots at him. I mean, it it is a ratcheting
3: up of the tension in terms of the mystery, but also in terms of the danger. Yeah, this escalation is good and that's what you want as a mystery progressive is you want to feel like the character is figuring it out, but you want to feel like they're getting deeper and deeper above their head. I think the way that I write this off is, you may never quite understand who the villain is, but we do have John Houston to sort of embody the worst qualities of it. And I do think that given that it was the 70s, it was just very easy for people to make the association that government would do this kind of bad. In the same way that they sent soldiers to die in an unfair war they knew they couldn't win, here is a government Program that pretends to provide for people, but is in fact ripping them off.
1: Again, that's the 70s part of this noir film that is set in the 30s, and they're going for that aesthetic. But yeah, it very much feels like that paranoia of the government that they are not holding things in our best interest, that they're working against us.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know that that would have played 10 years before, or in the 40s when noir first became popular. Noir is a cynical genre, but I don't even know at that time whether we would have been that cynical about... A government agency like Water and Power. Maybe. I don't know. But it definitely feels like completely ex- mainstream <laughs> cynicism and conspiracy <laughs> that Water and Power and government would be behind something like this in 1974. Now, one of the big things that Robert Town and Polanski fought about was the relationship. And it was Polanski who really wanted Jake and Evelyn to get together and have sex. To me, it feels organic that after, as Arnie pointed out, they've been shot at and riding on cars and done all this detective work, they would need a release it makes sense to me they go home and knock the boot
1: I don't know for me it does feel a little bit forced The the whole like looking in her eyes and noticing the flaw in her iris and that brings them closer
3: does it? That's what's funny about the scene is I feel like neither one of them, well, we had sex and now we have to talk and I don't want to tell you anything and you don't want to tell me anything. <laughs> like she's asking about his police work and what it was like in Chinatown. And this is where we get those lines about the woman that he couldn't protect. And yeah, she gets a phone call and like, I'm not going to tell you who I'm running off to.
1: And maybe... That's why it almost feels like there's no point to this scene. Like it gets resolved. So like they just go off their own separate ways. And maybe that's more about things being hidden all that. I don't know if I expected more of the relationship if they were going to start it. And it seems to end very quickly.
3: Yeah. They, because they can't get past their own suspicions. And if they could just trust each other, I suppose uh, it wouldn't end up where it does. You know, like it's it's the fact that she is still suspect number one and that he's sleeping with her, you know, like that that in of itself but the flaw of the iris i just want to point out just a theory i've had i don't know where i would have come up with this but like i feel like i've heard that that people that are products of incest oftentimes do have eye deformities i'm wondering if evelyn is not maybe the first incestuous daughter that cross has had and that that's what he's really noticing when he looks at her eye
1: I mean, it is true generations of incest will, yeah, a lot of abnormalities manifest
3: yeah that when she's talking about the flaw of the iris and we later find out what her father does it just made me think that maybe she too was a product of that
2: i took this whole conversation so much more metaphorical like they both had flaws and like he has the nose scar she has the flaw in the eye these are both flawed individuals that have come together but are going through this mystery can't trust each other entirely i didn't take any of it as incestuous i took
3: it all as, again, theme and character.
1: (laughs) I'm there with you, Arnie. That's how I took it, more or less, too.
3: Well, there and there's something else there, too, in the idea, and this is kind of more metaphorical, but the idea that she's going to be shot through that eye. like that. When we finally get her finally seen, there's a big hole blown in on it. Like I, He's talking about how he almost was able to save a woman that he cared about. She wants to know if she died or not. Again, we're, they're getting at the idea that, like, the past is coming back. That everything that he thought he left behind in Chinatown is coming for him again. That he can't escape the purgatory of that place. But this is the point where Geddes doesn't trust her enough to go and break her side mirror. This allows him cover as he's following her to the house and yeah, like, she's looking it's looking really bad for her. She's given this blonde woman that was photographed being with her husband who's now dead pills and it just looks like she's being held against her will and she has no real good answers. When she comes back to the car and Geddes is waiting, she's, all she can say is she's my sister. Well, I mean, this is what I expect the movie to do is, without knowing
2: the twist of the sister-daughter thing, the husband cheated on the wife with this blonde girl the husband showed up dead. The wife is always the number one suspect in these things. And now that the wife has the girl in captivity, you think that there's a plot there too, that she's getting revenge for sleeping with my husband. You know, in a common noir film, that would be the entire reveal.
3: Which is also what Noah says, the reason why he wants the girl is that he's worried what Evelyn, his daughter is going to do to this other woman. He's doing it, he says, to protect this little girl from a daughter that's lost to him. But it's interesting that she wants him him to go back to the house with her, to go to bed again. You you talk about it was abbreviated. She's clearly wanting more. And he's feeling like, no, I caught you. You're a killer. I I knew there was a reason why I didn't want to trust you. And this confirms it. So he's going to go off. He's going to go sleep alone. And he's going to get a phone call that Ida Sessions wants to meet him at her
1: house. Yeah, the the fake Evelyn Mulray.
3: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. This is a setup to get
2: him on the murder, right? I mean, that's the whole plan of why they'd even want those two in the same location.
1: Yeah, because don't the police just show up? Like, Escobar is just walking in that door. Or I think they might even be waiting for him. Like, cops just pop out everywhere.
3: The way I take it to mean is that she was already reported dead. The cops went there. They called Geddes because his phone number was on her wall they want to know the connection they're waiting there for him to show up he makes them wait he doesn't run right over he gets a good night's sleep and then goes in the morning (laughs) but they're still there and so is the body lying there with the overturned groceries that orange you know like yeah the metaphors of the orange and all of that and yeah they're giving him basically a couple hours to find his client or he's going to end up in jail, too.
1: Yeah, and when he goes back to see Evelyn, like, she's gone. They're throwing sheets over the furniture. I guess she's going to be gone a while. They, they got to prevent all that dust from settling.
2: I was surprised James Hong was gone. I always love seeing James Hong and stuff. Very minor role here. But again, uh, every time I bring him up, if you don't know who I'm talking about, you want I, I make I. I just love that
3: guy. No, yeah, oh yeah, Hong has had a great career. He's even in Everything, Everywhere All the Time recently in a very pivotal role. But I, I feel like his role here is small but important. It's again, it brings up that theme of the Chinatown why have we been told that this is important when nothing really has come out of that? Every time we see something Chinese or Asian, like it's just making us ask that again and again. And Giddy's, yeah, it's looking really bad that she's packing to go somewhere, running away and he goes out there, finds the glasses. He knows that Hollis wears glasses and so he's got her red-handed. He's going to go marching over there back to that house where Evelyn is keeping the other woman and make her confess this should be the murder she wrote scene you talk about this is the one where the femme fatale like cackles and reveals her master plan and instead who doesn't have for empathy for Faye Dunaway in this moment
2: yeah he's slapping her around I was pulled out of the scene though for just a moment and had to laugh because this is one of the scenes where Jack Nicholson goes big and he just shouts I want the truth! And then I just want to immediately put in the clip from A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth! And just have Jack Nicholson shouting at himself. (laughs) But I think she's lying. Because it's like, she's my sister. Smack! She's my daughter. Smack! She's my sister. Smack! I just think both are lies and she's really sticking to it. And in the 30s, it was more accepted to slap women around, and I'm going to place the actions in the time in which the movie is set.
1: I, I got to ask, though, Artie, like, when she's like, she's my sister and my daughter, like, I remember it was like record scratch when I was watching this, and I'm like, what? Now we got this whole incest thing going? It just made me, I'm like, what am I watching at this point? Like, this has really gone to a place I did not expect.
3: I'm glad to hear that, because I feel like this is one of those things, like, the shower seen in Psycho that people know before they see Chinatown.
1: I did not know this the first time I saw it.
3: Oh no, I had no clue about this. I wouldn't necessarily say
2: record scratch so much as aha. I knew a big twist was coming. It had to have one. I didn't expect incest, but by the same token, I've heard enough of these kinds of situations that I went, oh crap. And the one thing I had a question about was Was it consensual or was it rape? And the way that it's answered when Jake kind of asks what's going on, I was left kind of wondering. I think it's later pretty much implied
1: it was rape, but... Yeah, someone mentions rape.
3: That's what's interesting about the moment. Now watch it. She says, she's my sister and my daughter. Long pause. He raped you? And watch Faye Dunaway in that moment.
1: I will say, like, this time watching it, because I knew it was coming, like, I heard rape. I'm like, okay. But my the first time I watched this, my takeaway was that it was, like, an ongoing relationship between a daughter and a father. I, I don't know if you could say that's consensual, because she was a minor, but, like, that, that it wasn't just a one-time rape.
3: Right. It seems to be complicated. And it seems to be that she herself wouldn't have used that word to talk about whatever had happened. And, again, you just feel how dark that is. That's the kind of story that wouldn't be told in a movie, even a noir movie in 1940s, but in 1974, we can bring that kind of darkness to light, and it is a stunner. and interesting life-imitating art moment here. Jack Nicholson did press for this movie, and a reporter dug into his family tree and found out and confronted him, as they were doing the interview, that the woman that he believed to be his sister was his mother. And that his grandparents had pretended to be his parents.
1: Talk about gotcha journalism.
3: Yeah, right? Like, Jack had no idea that that was coming, and it really sent him in a tailspin. And to have that come out while doing this movie. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is, oof. I mean, now we have shows, I think Henry Louis Gates does this to people all the time on PBS, but uh what's that show where, like, where do you come from? Yeah,
1: Ben Affleck had slave owners or something, yes. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah, but to have it done to you while you're trying to promote a movie like this, ouch. But anyway, terrific moment. I feel like it still holds its power, even if you know the twist. And I love the fact that you guys didn't know the twist. And so Gideas has to make amends. Uh Uh-oh, I told Escobar to come here. I was so sure she was guilty. I was ready to hand her in and get another great photo in the paper of, of what a great guy I am. Prove that I'm the hero. Now I gotta hide her. Now I gotta figure out what to do. And as she's running out the door, she says, Those bifocals don't belong to Hollis. And we're really, I think at that point, on the wind of who it might be. That's the actual killer. If it's not Evelyn, it's gotta be Noah.
1: And his tells Escobar, hey, meet us in Chinatown. Finally gonna get some Chinatown stuff. But before we can get to Chinatown, we gotta go back to Curly's. Remember him? And this is, like... Jake knocks on that door. The wife answers. She's got a black eye. I'm like, oh, why she got a black eye? They're just telling us like working class dudes are abusive. And then it, like a second later, it clicked with me. Oh, she was cheating on him and he beat her. And I laughed and I feel bad about that because it's domestic abuse. But it's still kind of a funny callback. The way it is
2: told is... And it's just, it hits you all at once. I think that's why we laugh. It's not laughing because it's funny. It's an uncomfortable laugh because you instantly see, oh, he's still with her. Oh, this was what he had to do. To keep the marriage going. He felt like to still be a man after she got pounded, he has to pound her in
3: a different way. Yeah, and she very much knows who Geddes is and is not happy to see him there. Like, all of this, yeah, I agree. It's a very sensitive laugh. Like, you might think that people that are laughing at it are, in fact, as Arnie's saying, laughing at domestic violence. But that is not where it comes from. All of that is exceedingly dark. It's the irony of all of this. The surprise of it that makes us laugh. It is a jolt, and we're, we're, we're laughing like we got slapped and not because it's funny that, yeah, uh, Curly, we want to like you, man. We've <laughs> had sympathy for you in the beginning, and now I don't know, but at least you're going to help our hero out, help him escape Escobar, and he's going to provide the transport that gets Evelyn and Catherine away
1: yeah because they can't take the plane they can't take the train to Mexico they got to take Curly I guess he's got a boat or something he's gonna put him on and get him down there
3: yeah he's a fisherman Curly though
2: man he's gonna shake Jake down I mean he's like "Uh, you know how much you owe me I told you I'm gonna pay you I'm gonna pay you how'd you like to break it even I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you mean I actually have to work to pay you off? I don't know. He was never going to pay that bill. What if I throw in 75 bucks? Eh, How about 100? And my (laughs) debt? I mean, this
3: guy. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot to be cynical about when you see this kind of behavior. But yes. This is where we finally get the title. And again, to know that Robert Town didn't have this at the ending, that this is all Polanski. That Robert Town's ending was it was going to go to this house where Noah comes there, puts on the bifocals to look at the newspaper column, and there it is and Evelyn would come out and shoot him. End of story. That was how it was going to go.
1: So there was not going to be... Okay, the cut-up nose, iconic. The other thing I knew about this before I ever saw it, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. That line wasn't going to be in this film because, like, I feel like that is this film.
3: Roman Polanski was insistent, and nobody knew how to tell him any different given what he had been through. Blonde women die, and this is the story of L.A., In order to be true to tell the story of L.A., the beautiful blonde woman has to die. And everyone realized he was processing Sharon Tate and that's why he won the argument. But no, that that wasn't the original ending. And my, how marvelous when we find out that, of course, Hong is going to be living in Chinatown. I mean, it makes so much plausible sense that that's where he would take her to hide until they could get Curly to whisk them away. And that's, yeah, of course, Noah is not going to be outmatched. His guy has a gun. Giddish doesn't. They're going to take him hostage, and they're going to find the only daughter he has left. It's a stunner of an... I mean, again, I always get chills when I watch this ending here. It's just a real heartbreaker.
2: I knew this film came out in the 70s, but I never expected such a nihilistic freaking ending to it. I thought it would end on a down note. I mean, a lot of noir films do have down endings, and what I thought we'd have is, we see Noah Cross show up, and he's trying to take his grand-slash-daughter mmm... <laughs> I love that he introduces himself as grandfather. And Evelyn pulls a gun and shoots him. And I'm thinking, okay, he's dead. I mean, that was close range. He's dead. But the police are going to now arrest, maybe kill Evelyn. And I'm like, okay, that's where I see this going. And the car drives off. First of all, no way, no how you hit somebody in the eyeball at that distance with a pistol like that. But second... That she died, I'm like, okay, it's bad, but it's a sad ending. It's not what you'd expect, but okay. But that cross just comes walking up and is seemingly fine. I mean, he got shot, but apparently not bad. That's when I'm like, damn, this went bleak.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I have a physical reaction to this when he's like, oh, my granddaughter, and he, like, takes her away, like, my stomach. He covers
3: her mouth. She's screaming at the top of her lungs, and he covers her mouth and her eyes and pulls her out of the picture. It's horrifying.
1: Yeah, my stomach just aches. Like, both times, even the first time I saw this, when I was still trying to piece everything together, like, still that moment is so visceral. Like, oh, it's... Like, Houston, you nailed me a creepy, pedo, ancestral rapist. Like, you got it down great because you made me sick.
3: Yeah, it is a stunning ending. And oddly, again, I go back to Casablanca. Like, there is a real corollary. I mean, Casablanca is not exactly a noir, but it is a Bogart movie who's so closely associated with the genre that they could be the starter of the beautiful friendship with the way that his assistant is walking Geddes away. And he has that line that it does kind of feel like, forget it, feels like, here's looking at you, kid. I mean, yep. the lovers weren't going to be together, but it's extra horrifying to know that Gideon has relived whatever tragedy happened to him in Chinatown so long ago. That he had fought so hard to establish an identity beyond it. And to find that it all wound up to bringing him right back into this horrific moment. The reason why he gave up a gun. The reason why he stopped being a cop. He was going to protect women from this point on. And everything that he tried led him to failure. It's devastating.
2: Well, A, he didn't really protect women very well. As I imagine a lot of those cheating wives ended up like Curly's wife. But B, I knew the line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. I'd heard that line before. But... Having seen the movie now, I don't get it. Like, most of this movie didn't take place in Chinatown... What is it about this specific ending taking place in Chinatown is what makes him forget it? If it had been a few blocks outside of Chinatown, would he not have to forget
1: it? My interpretation is he has a past here with Chinatown. Like, he was a cop there, something happened that was bad, he left the force. His
3: woman died. He shot a woman dead. Let's just call, let's put the lines together. He killed a woman with a gun in being a cop trying to protect her she died and he walked away from the force never going to do that again and now his buddies that left with the force with him are watching as he recreated that right in front of him and forget it but he can't i mean again that's the horror is he, he spent the whole movie trying to forget whatever happened in chinatown years ago and it still came and found him
1: and it also feels like in that theme of you can't trust the government and it's working against you. It's like, you can't fight City Hall. It's, it's Chinatown. What are you going to do? Like, these forces are bigger than you. Just move on with your life.
3: And fate. I mean, again, it is nihilistic. That is exactly right. I mean, and I think that that is a theme in Polanski. I mean, I do think that many of his films are about characters that can't escape their destiny. Think of Rosemary and how she ended up being the the mother of the Antichrist, and accepting that role. I mean, I do feel like oftentimes he will land on the nihilistic ending. The guy survived the Holocaust. I just want to point out, he had uh, reasons to be so cynical.
2: So, Jacob
3: Stewart, do
2: you recommend Chinatown? Jacob.
1: I'm glad I got to come back and revisit this film, because the first time I'm like, huh one of the greatest films ever, it's good. I just didn't get it. I would say, I still don't get it. Like, one of the greatest films ever, I'm like, no, it's a very good film. Like, you should watch this movie. It's a great piece of noir. And I I think the issue, though, is like, Stuart, it it sounds like what's really revolutionary about this, I mean, besides the script and the direction, all that, like, acting, all that is great, is that 70s cynicism. And, like, I've grown up with those films. So, like, that doesn't seem new to me. I kind of expect that a lot of the times. So maybe because this just came before I had experienced things and it was so influential, it doesn't feel that groundbreaking to me, but I still think this is a great film. Like, I'm still trying to figure out why people rave over this thing, but as a piece of noir, like, yeah, it's entertaining. I like when you, again, Roger Rabbit, the nice guys, like, I like when you take the history of a town and and just make that the backdrop, especially when it's LA because I've grown up here and lived here most of my life. Like, it's just fun to see all that stuff. So, yeah, you're not not going to get all the answers here. Like if you think great script means tight script. No, there's a lot of ambiguity, which I really appreciated this time. I was frustrated the first time I watched it though, because of all that. This time I I got it a little bit more. And like you said, Stuart, maybe I got to watch it 10 more times like you and I'll fully get it. But everything's great about this. Like the the acting, the direction, uh, cinematography, all that fantastic, good mystery. I like the backdrop. So yeah, watch this film. I look forward to watching it maybe another couple of years and, and see if it grows. Steam because I'm still not there yet, but good film great film. Watch it.
3: Stuart. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I definitely, I think it was four times before I really understood the movie to be great. I don't think I would have called it great on my first three viewings. I don't think I understood enough about it. That has nothing to do with judging people's intellect or intelligence or anything. This movie is just too dense to take in on a single viewing. So what I've said in previous podcasts, the reason why I think this movie's good anytime I would have watched it is because I love movies that are about a particular location. That Chinatown is really exhibit A for talking about that.
1: Even though it's not in Chinatown, mostly.
3: Well, but it is is about L.A. And again, L.A. is depicted as Chinatown is depicted as a place where you get what fate has doled out for you, no matter how hard you try. And it's cynical. No one likes to think that. Everyone likes to believe they're the master. They can figure it out. They can guide their own destiny. But no, this is a movie that says that every winding, sprawling path in L.A. leads back to your doom. And I absolutely love the way that this dark chapter in L.A.'s history has been married to classic detective fiction. And suddenly this bizarre and repellent story about incestuous families suddenly feels like the only way you could tell and dramatize the story of a corrupt city officials cheating valley farmers out of their land and water. Like Robert Town has done such a great job with metaphor, with foreshadowing, with dialogue. He makes us laugh at things we don't want to. He makes us gasp at things we couldn't have anticipated, but seem like the only way they could have wound up. And everyone else here, I mean, is meeting the challenge. They are working at the height of their abilities to bring this script to life. And again, I've said it already, but all the performances are great. But John Huston, just amazing. Maybe one of the great, greatest, Uh, you know, it's hype to say the greatest. One of the greatest movie villains I've ever seen in a part that would have been easy to make overblown and ridiculous and ruin the movie.
1: Did he get a nomination for supporting actor or anything?
3: He didn't. Wow. Yeah, and Dunaway. Again, a very difficult actress, made a lot of bad movies, Supergirl, we've talked about it, but she is every bit of an equal and really takes a cliche and makes it tragic and sympathetic. I mean, femme fatales, rarely do we have any empathy for them, and I walk away from this movie... Bruised and hurting for her about the way her story wound up. But Nicholson, too, I do think that, as Arnie pointed out, he's known for his big performances, and sometimes he lets that come out here, but I love how reserved he is. I love how quiet he is. I love how he wants to be the showman jumping in the spotlight, but he can't because everything leads back to his doom. And like Greek tragedy, I just think his final moments in this movie are just a real stunner, heartbreaker, some of his best acting work. And so while you've said, Orney, I think in the past that one flew over the cuckoo's nest, or maybe Shining is your favorite, Nicholson. This movie is it for me. I absolutely adore it. It just marries with my sensibilities. I don't know that everyone's going to think it's one of their favorite films, but if you're cynical like me and you love LA like I do, and you love to see an exploration of a place the dedicated the way that this movie does, yeah, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made.
2: Well, it's hard to follow that. I. <laughs> recommend this film. I can't say, again, first viewing. I'm not going to put it up on one of the greatest films ever made. I do regret that, given now playing schedule of two movies a week, I wanted to let a couple days pass and revisit this movie, and I was unable to. But coming into this, I had read, again, about how it's like one of the best scripts in cinema history. On this one viewing, because I was looking for a tightly wound Noir mystery that does leave dangling threads and inference. Maybe that's exactly what you want. But I want to point out, yes, the script is very good. So is the acting. So is the directing. The camera work in here. The lighting of some of these shots. There's several of those shots in here that are just wonderfully golden. And it's a visually impressive movie, despite having that brown tint that i associate with most movies coming out of the 70s but i think it's so well filmed i feel like polanski is the only one who could have pulled this off as far as getting all of these performances out of these actors keeping dunaway and nicholson in line perhaps uh, you can't say that that's 100 on the actors you If you have a director there who's giving proper direction. And all the minor characters too. Every single one of them pops off the screen to a point where I can't find flaw with any performance in this movie. Even if I am like, oh, it's James Wong. Oh, it's Higgins from Magnum P.I. So, it's a really solid recommend. I definitely think people shouldn't make the mistake I did and not see this film. You should check it out. It's both... A bit of must-watch film homework, but it's homework that you'll enjoy doing. There's, it's a really enjoyable film. Sorry if we've already spoiled the mystery. I do <laughs> hope you watched it before this, but even if you did, like Stuart said, he's watched it ten times and finds some new stuff in it each time. So
1: It's kind of nice knowing what's going to happen in it, like because it is a very dense film.
3: Yeah, Oedipus Rex, you know that what's going to happen there. It's still a tragedy. I mean, yeah. I only read Oedipus once, I mean.
2: (laughs) I didn't need to revisit it to see its dense plotting. But yes, recommend for Chinatown. But will I say the same next week? Many, many years later, 16
3: years later, a sequel was made, The Two Jakes. I had
1: no idea this existed.
3: Yep. I did know about this. I have seen it many times. I have been wanting to return to it. And because we have the great patronage of David Kraft, we get to do so next week. Also want to point out That if you become a patron this month, you will hear us talk more, Nicholson. We just released the show on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the movie he made after Chinatown and the one that finally got him the Oscar. That's out now. Classic film, one of my all-time favorite films,
2: what I consider to be one of the best ever made, so check that out. If you just pledge $10, you're getting... Over 70 bonus movie reviews. We've been doing this one new one every month, at least. And then all of the back catalog over the past several years, you get a lot of bonus reviews. Cuckoo's Nest is but the most recent.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of esteemed films that we do here. Cuckoo's Nest, Under the Skin, and Monster Trucks.
2: Hey, we have (laughs) Enter the Dragon and The Last
3: Dragon. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All the dragons are covered
3: Yeah, I love that about the Patreon shows. They really are, are varied and, and have some of the most uh, entertaining looks at one-offs uh, that we can do. You know, too often some movies shouldn't have a sequel so it's always sad to follow them. But yes, when you join us on the patron shows each month, we're talking about a film that didn't have a life beyond that one instance and it can be fun to do that. So you can sign
2: up for our patron feed at either patreon.com forward slash nowplayingpodcast or through Podbean at nowplayingpatron.com. And just before we go, we also have not one, but two giveaways starting right now. First up, earlier in the year, you got to hear us review Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the video game adaptation starring Ben Schwartz as Sonic, Idris Elba as Knuckles, James Marsden, Jim Carrey, and more. Thanks to our friends at Paramount, we're giving away Five digital codes. And this one is exclusive to the Facebook listeners group. If you're already a member of the group, you're already entered to win. But if you aren't a member of the group, it's a really fun place to talk with other movie lovers, talk with some of the now-playing hosts, and other behind-the-scenes now-playing team. Lately, just discussion of trailers, movies, soundtracks. And it's drama-free. Thank goodness. So, you can join the group by heading to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash nowplayingpodcast, and our pinned post takes you right to the group. And we're going to announce the winners of the Sonic contest on June 2nd. But wait, there's more! We're also giving away five Blu-ray copies of x the A24 slasher about a group of young victims making an adult film in rural Texas, and everything's going great until their reclusive hosts catch them in the act, and the cast finds themselves fighting for their lives. I saw this film recently. It is a definite recommend. It's both a fun throwback to slashers like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as you might guess with it taking place in Texas in the 70s, but also has a lot more to say, a lot of themes that I picked up on as is befitting an A24 film. I reviewed this on our In Focus newsletter just a couple weeks ago, and if you want to win one of the physical Blu-ray copies of X, that's how you enter, is by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. If you head to nowplayingpodcast.com, on the right is the sign-up form to join the newsletter. You're going to get extra Now Playing content every Friday, find out what the hosts are watching when we're not just reviewing these movies, updates on upcoming movies on our schedule polls about whether you the listeners recommend the same films we do so much more jason puts a lot of work into that newsletter It's something all of us are really admiring of i look forward to reading it every week so if you subscribe you're entered to win the copy of x and we'll announce those winners in our june 3rd newsletter so thank you for listening jacob stewart thank you for joining me So until next time, get out of here, listeners. We're doing you a big favor.
3: You want to do your partner a big favor? Take
0: him home. Take him home! Just get him the hell out of here! Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be a mensch. Otherwise, I'm going to have to give you a serious reprimand. And a special thanks to David Kraft for his incredible support of the show and for picking this movie for our hosts to review. The customer is always right. Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts.
3: I can make the rest of your life awful easy. you never know when you're going to need something extra.
0: On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I wonder, is it too late for us to have a look around? No, allow me to show you. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Oh, he's looking forward to it, Mr. Giddes. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm just trying to
1: make a living. I don't want to become a local joke.
0: And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. I want the big boys that are making the payoffs. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Is it business or an obsession with you? Associate produced by Jason Latham. These are my operatives and at some point they're going to have to assist me. Uh, I can't do everything myself. Now playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. Takes finesse and experience. Now playing credits read by Brock. Old Cactus Earl probably hoodwinked quite a few city boys with his Will Rogers routine. But I knew he wasn't talking about two horses on their honeymoon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated.
1: What can I tell
0: you, kid? You're right.
2: You're right, you're right.
0: You're right. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. There's no point in getting tough with me. I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Giddies. My lawyer does. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I suppose we'll be hearing from your attorney Now playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown.
3: I thought I introduced you to Chinatown. I thought that was one of our movie marathon movies. Nope. We did a Noir Night, but this was not one of them. I really thought you had
2: seen this before. (laughs) I thought we watched this movie together.
3: I can't believe it.
2: Mandela (laughs) Effect or something. That did not happen. I have never seen this before. What did we watch on Noir Night? We watched Maltese Falcon, we watched Blade Runner, and we watched Body Heat.
3: Okay. It should have been Chinatown.
1: You screwed up, Stuart. I probably didn't like it as much
3: back then. I did. Else? Now you can set me up. Why don't you
2: Jacob just kick it to me for the plot then cuz otherwise Wait, it's just going to sound the plot weird. Summary. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. Okay. I don't think we communicated that, but hey, I'm more than happy.
3: <laughs> it's it's in the notes I sent. It, okay, but you we didn't communicate it. <laughs> okay, yeah. I figured I was giving you a break. I was like <laughs> particularly after I rewatched two Jakes, I'm like I'll I'll do of yeah, You a had solid. to figure out
1: that plot already for no reason. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Uh, my, my entire thing was
2: high level short high level short so more than happy i
1: said i want the truth
0: she's my sister she's my daughter my sister my daughter i said i want the truth you can't handle the truth